The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Okay, one person. Great. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I have this person in my life who, with an eagle eye, watches where I put this stand every week. And maybe you have been one of those people and you just haven't told me yet, um, but it's my wife. And she is so concerned because I guess over the last few weeks, I've put it like that. And I don't know if you can see, but it's kind of off the front. So she is waiting for me to fall off the stage on some Sunday morning. And then there's someone else in here who I'm not going to out who has texted my wife and said, do you see where the stand is during our time together? So I am going to make sure that I cause as little anxiety as possible um, for three of you who pay attention to that. Um, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I would love for you to open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And while, while you're doing that, I just want to take a minute, and if you have your version app, you can find it in there. While you're doing that, I just want to take a moment and and just kind of remind you of the context for, for what's going on here. Because we have, we have two letters that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. And they're written probably a year apart, uh, something like that. And, and if we were to go back and we were to look in Acts chapter 17... We would learn about the way that the church in Thessalonica was founded. Paul and Silas and uh, Timothy. And I know several times I've said Luke. Sometimes I haven't said Luke. Uh, maybe, maybe you're wondering why Luke gets thrown into that. Um, a little earlier in the book of Acts, we, we actually see where the, the, the pronouns that Luke uses because he's the writer of the book of Acts. The pronouns that Luke uses kind of changes. He's talking about they and them and all of these kinds of things. And then somewhere in Acts chapter 16, he says we, which means Luke has, Luke has joined this mission. So um, there's kind of an assumption that Luke is there. Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are on what's, what's called Paul's second missionary journey. And they go to Thessalonica, and as is Paul's custom, they, they preach in the synagogue for, for three weeks in a row, for three Sabbaths in a row. There are a number of people there in Thessalonica who become followers of Christ. And, and almost instantly, there is this wave of hardship and persecution that befalls not just, not just the church, but it befalls Paul and Silas and Timothy and probably Luke. And they have to flee to Berea is where they end up. And then they flee a little bit later to the, the city of Athens. And what happens is they've left this church behind after just probably a month's worth of teaching. And they've kind of left this church behind to kind of figure out this whole Christian thing um, with just three or four weeks of teaching so Paul is obviously concerned about this church that he had founded because he loves them and he cares for them and he wants to be with them and he's, he's concerned for, for where they are in their faith and how they're doing in the hardship and the persecution and he really wants to return and he can't. So instead, uh, 
he sends the youngest and most inexperienced person in their group, which is Timothy, and I love that part too, back to Thessalonica to see what's going to happen. And then Timothy returns, and as we've talked, I think almost every week over the past month or so, what, what Timothy reports is the church in Thessalonica is not just surviving, in fact, they're thriving. They're growing, and they're experiencing, um, they're experiencing Christ's love, and they're being demonstrators of Christ's love. So then what Paul does is he writes them a letter, and that's 1 Thessalonians. He writes them back and says, hey, kind of reminds them of, this, of what had happened and we sent Timothy to you and he's come back and you are thriving. And then also he talks about a few gaps that the church in Thessalonica had. And, and we talked about this um, the last two weeks. They had a gap in their, in their sexual ethic. Um, they had a gap in their idleness, in their laziness. And this is really going to come back up toward the end of this particular letter. So we're going to talk about that in two weeks. And then their, 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 their third really big gap was their understanding of the return of Christ. So Paul and Timothy and Silas and possibly Luke had been in Thessalonica. They, they talked about all sorts of things. And one of the things that they talked about was, their, was that Christ was coming back. So since, since, since we are not alone in our own misunderstandings of what the return of Christ looked like, they had some questions. They had had a few weeks worth of teaching. They had this very brief letter from Paul, 1 Thessalonians, and then a period of time has passed. And they sort of took what they heard from Paul, they took what they read from Paul and Silas and Timothy, and then they kind of, again, like began to misunderstand and misconceive what the truth was about the return of Christ. So then what Paul is going to do, because he can't always go back to all of these places, he's going to write them a letter. He's going to write them a letter that's going to address uh, the misconceptions that this church is having. And in 2 Thessalonians, there are two primary things that he's going to talk about. The first one is the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. He's going to spend the bulk of this, all we're going to talk about next week. Um, he's going to spend an entire section of this letter, a third of the letter, correcting their orientation about what it means that Jesus is going to come back. Because what's happened is they've heard that Jesus is going to come back and they think it's going to be tomorrow. So they've stopped, they've stopped working. They've stopped doing the things that they're supposed to be doing as followers of Christ. So what he's going to do in this letter, he's going to essentially say, yep, Christ is coming back. Um, it might be tomorrow, but it's probably not because there are a few things that need to happen. So if you're one of those people like who loves charts and tries to figure out when Jesus um, is coming back, um, that's not what Paul is doing. He is going to tell them some things, but he's trying to... He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to call them to live a life of faithfulness as they're waiting. Calling them to work. And then that's the second thing. He's going he's gonna to talk about their idleness in the church. And it's actually gotten worse since the time of the first letter. He has some very harsh language. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, not only for the church at Thessalonica, the people who aren't serving and working and laboring there, but he has some harsh language for Christians today who are 
idle, who are lazy. Because he understands that their idleness and their laziness is in direct proportion to their faith. And he's going to correct them on this. And for Paul, a lack of work equals a lack of faith. And it's not just that. A lack of work indicates a lack of love and care and concern for other followers of Christ. And that's in a couple weeks. I want to also remind you before we read a little bit of Second Thessalonians here. Remember that this is written to a church. This is written to a church that's in the midst of hardship and persecution. So anything that we, that we are going to take from this, and, and this is a good practice anyway for just reading the Bible, anything we were going to take from this, we want to take with a little grain of salt. That there's a context. There's a reason he's writing this. So he's writing this to a church that's in hardship. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 together. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're writing to the church in Thessalonica to you who belong to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Dear brothers, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. So one of the things that we've talked about, and just a reminder, is that Paul almost always begins a letter to a church before he answers their questions, before he addresses the concerns that he has for them, Paul almost always, when he writes a letter to a church, he almost always begins with reminding them of who God is and who they are in God. What he's trying to do, what he's doing in this in his letters, is he wants to ground the people in God. So they won't be caught up in their own situations and circumstances. This is our age. We're so wrapped up in, in, in what's going on in our lives. And it's true for the church at Thessalonica. It's true for all of the other churches. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to tell them who God is. He's going to tell them who Jesus is. Because that, that's the center the biggest issue in your life is not your issues. The biggest issue in our life is understanding who God is and understanding who Jesus is. And when we grasp that, when we, when we live in this space where we have confidence and trust and hope and faith in who God is, it's not that our things don't matter but we'll have an orientation around what matters most, and that's the identity of God. He identifies God as the Father. And if we were to flip back to 1 Thessalonians, Paul talked about the way that he and his, his followers, he and his friends, had shown up in Thessalonica. He tells them that I came at you like a father. God is our Father. He loves them, and he's using this letter, he's going to use this letter to plead with and encourage and urge the believers in Thessalonica to live in a way that God would consider worthy. That's the role of God. God is their father. He has some things for them. And then he talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus is Lord. 
And he gives grace and peace. That's what Jesus does. Jesus gives grace and peace. Earlier, uh, it was just last week, in our Bible, in the Bible reading plan that we, that we send out uh, each week, it's in version. Earlier uh, in the Bible reading plan, someone wrote this. I didn't get permission from them, so I'm not going to out them. But they wrote this in relation, in response to this, these first two verses. Sometimes all that's needed is a little grace and peace. We don't need to solve the problems people face. We just need to offer them God's peace and love. And as I was thinking about that, as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Jesus is not here to solve all of our problems yet. Jesus is not here to solve all of our problems yet. What he is going to do is he is going to offer God's grace and peace and love so that we can reflect him in the midst of what's happening in our lives. That's what Jesus is out to do. He is going to solve all of our problems, but not yet. We're waiting for this. This is where the church at Thessalonica is caught up in, and this gives us a little bit of insight into what we're going to talk about next. Jesus gives grace and peace. So I want to encourage you whatever. I don't, know that, I don't know all of the things that all of you wrestle with. I just know what I wrestle with and I deal with. And what I've learned at my age, that as much as I wish it weren't true, the problems in my life just aren't going away. Have you noticed that? Is that? Who is still living in the delusion that one day your problems are going to go away? right? Your problems aren't going away. And what I need is access to something that's beyond myself to be able to live through that. And that's grace and peace. They thank God because of the flourishing of their faith. They, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, thank God for the flourishing of their faith, their growth in love with one another. And what they know is that the church at Thessalonica is not doing these things out of their own strength. And this is one of the things as we're reading through this letter that we want to see, is we don't want to operate under our own strength. We don't want to operate under our own power. Because no matter how strong we are in certain circumstances, your body has limitations. Physically, your body has limitations. Mentally and emotionally, your body has limitations. There are limits to what we can do. Which is why, for some of us, we're still dealing with the same things we were dealing with 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's why, for some of us, when we because we are a certain way and we go somewhere else and, and lo and behold, that same problem follows us, Right? It's why sometimes we think, well, if I, can, if I can just get another job in another community, I'll get, I'll get a reboot. And maybe that works for three months, six months. If you're really awesome, it works for about a year. And then one day you wake up and you're like, you brought all of that stuff with you. 
See, God wants us to operate under his power, and they're operating under God's power. And the fruit that they're bearing, this is what Paul and Silas and Timothy are are telling the church in Thessalonica, the fruit that they're bearing is obvious for all to see. See, when when we are operating out of this place of strength from God, it will just be obvious. We may not be, people, people who aren't Christians may not be able to name it. Oh, that's a person who's walking with God. That's a person who's been with God. That's a person who has the Holy Spirit inside of them. They may not be able to name that, but there will be something. There will be something that is an indicator of good fruit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is how the three described it when they wrote the first letter. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. That is fruit. That is obvious fruit. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and the true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He's the one who's rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. So wherever Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke go, as soon as they mention Thessalonica, as soon as they mention the church in Thessalonica, what they start hearing from other people is, those are some some loving people up there. Those are some people who have been transformed by the gospel. It's obvious. And then Paul says that, that they are using the church in Thessalonica as an example of what endurance and faithfulness look like amidst persecution and hardship. And here's what that looks like. Whenever they start talking about this church, because now they've moved on, they, now they're definitely in Corinth. They've definitely moved on. So, so as other Christians are coming to them and talking about the hardships that they face because they've become followers of Jesus, what Paul and Silas and Timothy are able to do is, well, let me tell you about the church in Thessalonica. They literally chased us out of town. They literally went into someone's house and dragged him out into the street and dragged him down to the city authorities. And that was not cause for anxiety or bitterness or frustration. In fact, because of those things, they're actually growing. And whatever you like whoever Paul is talking to, whatever you are thinking, feeling, wondering about as it relates to your Christianity and the hardships that you're having as it relates to your faith, like you, you can do it if you trust in God because the Thessalonians are doing it. And they're not doing it because they're so awesome. They're doing it because God is. And as followers of Christ, this is, this is a message for us. We ought to be asking some questions. These are in the YouVersion app. How am I bearing fruit? This is a question maybe we need to ask. How am I bearing fruit? Is my faith flourishing? Why or why not? What are some examples of this? Is my love for other Christians growing? 
Why or why not? What are some examples of this? See, when we read the Bible, we're not just reading some other people's stories. We're we're reading this to help us understand more of who God is and more of who we are so that we can be reflective. If I were facing hardship, if I knew that by accepting Jesus that there was a possibility that someone was going to come and pound on my door one night and drag me out into the street and drag me before the city officials, how how am I going to respond? Is my fruit attracting that? Like, that's the crazy part of this whole thing. You might say the church at Thessalonica was bringing it upon themselves. Just by loving and serving other people, they were were attracting this persecution. Let's keep reading. Let's pick up at verse 5. And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. And also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe, and this includes you because you believe what we told you about him. One of the things I love about having our having our son John home with us is we always have these theological debates that that frankly go on far too long for my for my like. Like they kind of start off and last week or last night as we were talking, um, we were actually kind of talking about this particular topic. He starts asking me questions and then I'm like, okay, I really don't want to talk about that right now. Let's talk about it later. And then like 30 seconds later, I'm like, okay, but what about this? And he's awesome. And he's like, okay, so are we going to have this discussion? Are we not going to have this discussion? Dad, which is it? This is nothing bad about him. It's everything bad about me. And we had this really, really lengthy conversation about this particular text because it it says some really strong things. It says some really heavy things. A couple weeks ago, I used the word intense. Then I used the word passion. Like there's some intense language in this text. And as we're we're reading through this, like we we might respond in lots of different ways. And one of the things that as I was talking with him last night, one of the things that I just want to remind us is, is remember who Paul is writing this to. Like, first stop, who's Paul writing this to? Paul's writing this to a group of people who are being persecuted and enduring hardship for their faith. So what he's probably going to do is he's going to say and do some things that are going to provide hope and comfort for them in the midst of that. So Paul may or may not 
be establishing some sort of great theology of what of of when Jesus is going to come back and what does eternity look like and what does hell look like because he is a church that's suffering persecution and what they heard in the previous letter was when Jesus returns those who are dead in Christ are going to rise those who are alive in Christ are going to rise and it might be logical for the Christians to wonder well, what's, what's going to happen to the people who are persecuting us? To me, that might be a little bit of a reasonable question. Because what I might hear, and this is what I would argue that I think the Thessalonians are hearing, what we might be very tempted to hear as we read through First Thessalonians in particular is that when Jesus comes back, like, there's going to be justice in terms of me escaping, but what about the justice for those who were perpetrators against me? Like, those might be some questions. And maybe they were asking questions like, in the midst of this hardship and this persecution, have we done something to deserve this? Is this ever going to end? Is there a meaning and a purpose to this hardship and persecution? Have you ever wondered that in the midst of your hardships? Is there a meaning and a purpose to this? Have you ever asked, have I done something wrong? And then one of the worst things we might think is, you know, I thought Jesus was going to make all my dreams come true. Why hasn't that happened yet? And what Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica, and this is, I think, something that's really important for us, is that the, the persecutions and the hardships that the church is facing, they're not for nothing. They're not for no reason. They're not just happening. These persecutions have a purpose. And here's what the NLT says, and then I'm going to explain it to you what it means. The NLT says, the New Living Translation says that the persecutions show God's justice and they make his people worthy of the kingdom. And here's what that means. There is persecution on believers because God has considered them worthy of the kingdom. Because God has considered them worthy of the kingdom, because God has saved them, there is going to be persecution. They're not earning their salvation through their persecution. They're not adding to their salvation through the persecution. But because they're faithful followers of Christ, they're going to be persecuted. God considers them worthy of this persecution. And persecution in a heart and hardship is a package deal with salvation and security from God. It just comes with the program. Those who have been called to God's kingdom have a price to pay. And that price is not earning my salvation. Jesus has done the work. We want to be careful. We talk about that whenever we talk about salvation, how, how we gain our salvation. It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through what Jesus did on the cross. We don't earn our salvation. We don't add to it. It's not a work. We're not more saved because we're more persecuted or more faithful but what's going on here is there is a cost. And the cost of our salvation is suffering. 
is persecution. So much so that later, Paul would write this in his second letter to Timothy. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So as we think about our relationship with God and we, we think about what we get from that. Oftentimes when we talk with other people who aren't believers, we, we talk about the hope and the grace and the peace and the mercy and the love and, and all of those things that we gather from the presence of the Holy Spirit and a new meaning and a new purpose in life. Free from the shackles and the weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame. Like we talk about all of those things. But my guess is, how many of us, when we've talked with someone else about becoming a Christian, how many of us have said, oh, and there's persecution. And there's hardship. And there's suffering. And I believe we might want to work that into our conversation at some point. Maybe don't lead with that, right? What are you going to get out of a relationship with God? Hardship and persecution. Who's in? Who's with me? We don't want to lead with that. But we don't want to avoid it. We don't want to not talk about it. Oh, that almost happened. Did you see that? We don't want to not talk about it because when we don't talk about reality with people who are becoming followers of Christ, the first time something hard comes along, they might be tempted to ask, well, why is this happening to me? See, genuine faith looks like flourishing despite hardship. Genuine faith looks like growth in our love. And this is something that's not impossible because the church at Thessalonica was doing it. And it's the life that we're called to live. We're called to trust in God. Because when Jesus returns, and, and now like when we get deeper into this part that we're, um, that we're looking at, what we're going to see is he's not just demonstrating justice for his own people in terms of flying off there's justice for, for the perpetrators of the victimization of his people. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about God's justice. God has not only, or Jesus has not only forgotten about his people, but he hasn't forgotten that they've endured hardship at the hands of other people. He hasn't forgotten that. He hasn't, he hasn't spaced that off because he's a righteous judge. And I think one of the challenges for us as, as we read through this and we see eternal destruction forever separated from the Lord coming in a flaming fire, we, we read these kinds of things. And as we talked last week in our staff meeting about this text, one of the things that we have to understand is there are real consequences. There are real consequences for not following Christ. There are real consequences. This is a real thing. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul uses the word disaster. I think I referred to it as disastrous last week. See, for those who are in Christ, we're going to be with him. 
for those who are not in Christ, there are, there are real consequences to that. And we don't know when any of this is going to happen. Our days are numbered. What I said last week was we are all on borrowed time. And this is very real. And the thing that we want to make sure we understand is when, when Paul is talking about this in this way, these aren't the actions of a, um, the word I used was ambiguous God, a capricious God who's just like, you know, I feel today, I feel like, I feel like today is going to be a punishment day for some people on earth. So let's, let's make someone's life really hard. Today's the day for no reason, no rhyme. What we're seeing here is God's justice. And I always want to remind us as we think back to the Old Testament, we think about like the Babylonian captivity. We think about how God's people were taken out of Jerusalem to Babylon. And we read all of these judgments that God brings against his people who are disobedient. We always forget the disobedient part. We always think that God seems mean and nasty in the Old Testament. Why is he doing all of these things? Doesn't he love anybody? Doesn't he care about anybody? And what we have to remember is God is functioning out of his justice. He didn't just wake up that day and send in the Babylonians. It was after patience and mercy and grace. And God is not doing these things out of, out of that kind of emotion. And it tells us that when Jesus returns, he will receive praise because justice will be complete. That's what verse 10 is saying. When he comes on that day, he'll receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe. Why? Because justice is complete because not only are we as God's holy people going to be with him forever, but the people who have perpetrated acts of violence and persecution against us because of that belief, they're going to be punished. That's justice. That is what justice is. And that sounds, again, that sounds hard and this was a big part of our conversation last night as we, were, as we were talking about what all this looks like. And I just want to caution you that what Paul is doing here is he's trying to give his people hope in this. One of the things I like to do, uh, one of the things I like to ask for at Christmas um, are books. Some of the books I ask for are books that I read in high school and I wasn't mature enough to understand them. Right? Like I remember reading Fahrenheit 451 when I was in high school. And I didn't understand it. So that's a book I've asked for. Famous books I've asked for. The past couple years I've been asking for books from C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, if you're familiar with that. He also wrote a number of other fictional books that were about the Christian life. And one of those books is called The Great Divorce. And it's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating book. It begins um, right on chapter one. It begins where, where there's someone in line and he's in line on, in a, waiting to get on a bus. 
And immediately, like you flip onto page two, and all of these people start talking about all the reasons they don't want to get on the bus. They don't want to go to where this bus is going. And what you learn is, as you read, as you progress through the book, that the bus is, um, started, starts in hell and it goes, in, goes to heaven. So it's a bus ride of people who are in hell and they're going to heaven. And the interesting thing is when they, when they get to heaven, if they want to get off the bus, they can. Now, I think some of you right now are like, well, there is no bus that goes from heaven to hell. And you're right, there's not, which is why it's a fictional story. But here's what's going on as we read through the story. There are some people that when they get to heaven, they come up with all these kind of reasons why they don't want to stay. So even if there were a bus ride from hell to heaven, most people aren't going to stay. And then what you find at the end of the story on the very last page, spoiler alert, the book has been around for like 75 years, so... Spoiler alert, the guy was having a dream. And what the book is really about is all of the reasons that people don't accept Christ. That's what the book is really about. And they're all of the things that we would commonly experience as you've talked to people about not following Christ. I can do it later. That sounds really good. I'm a good moral person. My, one of my favorite ones from the story, I haven't killed anybody. All of these things are going on in this book. And what I love so much, because we ask questions as we read this, there's this great line in the book. And it says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without the self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and consistently desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, open. So we're not talking about people who've never known anything about God in this, story, in this scene in 2 Thessalonians. What Paul is warning us against is there are people who are going to reject God. And when Jesus returns, those people are not going to be with God. And that's weighty. And that's hard. And those are things that we don't like to think about. Because we all have friends and we all have relatives, real people, who are in this category. And this takes me to, like, so then what do we do about that? This is not the end of that, of their story. This doesn't have to be the end of their story. See, each one of us has been placed where we are to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we're in our neighborhood. That's why we go to the schools we go to. That's why we work where we work. That's why we shop where we shop. That's why we're here. Is to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. 
Because what Paul is, is painting this picture of is this thing that hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. Jesus has yet to return. And what each one of us has today is the opportunity to faithfully proclaim who Jesus is. This is what he's telling the church at Thessalonica. And one of the ways we do that is the way that we respond in the midst of hardship. Here are my response questions. Does the way I respond to persecute is the way I respond to persecution and hardship a demonstration of endurance and faithfulness? Think back to the last thing that was hardship for you. Real hardship for you. Did you respond with endurance and faithfulness? Do I demonstrate God's justice to others? Am I a just person? When I see something that's wrong, am I trying to fix it? Why or why not? What are examples of this? Are my actions demonstrating that I'm worthy of God's kingdom? Why or why not? What are examples of this? Let's read the last two verses. So we keep on praying for you, asking God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live. You will be honored and you will be honored along with them. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. See, God gives us exactly what is needed when it's needed to be faithful demonstrations of his love and mercy. Exactly when we need it, God gives us what we need. And this is why we can't do these things under our own strength. Have you ever faced a hardship that you knew there was like, I don't have any idea how I'm going to get through this? What God is calling us to do in that moment is trust in him. What God is calling us to do in that moment is to reach out to him and to call out to him and act under his strength. And one of the things that we have to get here in this text is future deliverance means current responsibilities. Future deliverance means current responsibilities. Maybe another way to talk about that, a biblical way to talk about that, is sowing leads to reaping. The things that we sow are the things that we are going to reap. We're in that mode right now at our house with our garden. Now that the ice age is over of our summer, we actually have some heat now that monsoon season is over for our summer, hopefully, we actually have some heat. And farmer friends, ranching friends, gardening friends, what are you starting to see right now? You're starting to see some fruit. We're starting to see what we've sown. We're starting to reap from what we've sown and if we want to reap what God has for us, we have things that we have to sow.
the word that I love so much at the end of verse 11. I'm just going to read verse 11 and I'll say the word. So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. The first sentence, his call. What I like so much about that word his is because the Christian life is about us living in accordance with his call. And I know my own temptation to live out my call on my life, to live a place out of my preferences and my comfort level and my power and my strength, my own wishes and desires. And the thing that Paul is calling the church at Thessalonica to, and the thing that the Bible is calling us to, is to live our lives worthy of his call. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I set myself aside. The only way I'm going to do that is if I receive the power that God is giving me. If I, if I receive his enablement and his empowerment in my life. Because when we operate under our own power and strength, it's not enough to save us. And I think most of us know that's true. God is only honored by our lives when we live in accordance with his will. Not his will plus mine. Not my will plus a little bit of his. Well, I mean, I read a Bible verse this morning, so, so I'm living in accordance with God's will. See, our lives only have meaning and purpose when we live in accordance with his will. That's what the Bible is telling us. And how do we do that? By doing the things that our faith prompts us to do. That's how we do it. When we feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and we are obedient to it, that's how it works. And now a question might be, well, how do I know if what I'm feeling is prompting of the Holy Spirit? We've all probably wondered that. Well, there are two ways. The first way is to be in such a closely aligned relationship with God that when you feel that prompting, you know it's him. You don't even have to ask. Is this calling me to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? If it's pushing me towards one of those things, then I would tell you that that's it's a good chance that's a God thing. And then the second way is to be in relationship with other believers. That's what growing love looks like. We demonstrate that with one another. So for us, as we think about what, what this means for us, the question we have to ask is, how are we living our lives? And that's been the theme of 1 Thessalonians. It's going to be the theme for 2 Thessalonians. It's a theme throughout the entirety of the Bible. Has what I've read impacted and affected me? The way we talk about that here is I want to grow in my wisdom and knowledge that leads to transformation. I don't want to just grow in wisdom and knowledge if I'm not changed. 
This is the call on our lives. So it's the questions that we have. Am I trusting God to enable me to live a life worthy of his call? Why or why not? What are examples of this? Are there ways I try and take control of my own life and live out my own will, desires, and wants? And the answer to that question is always yes, just so you know. We are perpetually feeling the pull of our own wills, wants, and desires. And here's the third question. How am I demonstrating that I'm depending on God and his power? Am I resting and trusting in him? Am I flourishing in my growth? Am I trusting that God's got this under control? And am I resting in his power? Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. I pray that we would be a people who rests and trusts in you. That we would see that you have all things under control. That your justice is perfect. And as we've talked about so many times, this just frees us up to love and serve people. So help us to do that. Help us to lean into your power and lean into your strength. And to ask you to do that with us every single day. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.